Good, good morning. My name is Chad. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm happy to see each and every one of you, and I'm happy to be God's vessel to preach his word this morning. Sometime after college, I lived in Alaska for a couple years. One of the first things that struck me about my first summer in Alaska was the sun didn't even set until 11 p.m., and then the light just kind of hung on for another hour or two. Now, that was great for me, young single guy who was active. I couldn't imagine trying to put my daughters to bed at night in those summer months, though. Come on, girls, it's time to go to bed. It's, it's 1030. But, Dad, the sun hasn't even set yet. It was in Alaska that God began to work on my heart about the great need for people that don't know the Lord to be introduced to him. The great need for people who aren't growing in their faith, that need to grow in their faith. And so I remember one day uh, driving home, the sun had not yet set, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw this skate park with all these teenagers taking advantage of all that extra daylight, doing their jumps up and down, doing their twists. And then it hit me. Chad, these guys need to know about Jesus. Oh, yeah. So I began to pray about it and talk to God. What, what do I do? And talk to other people. And after all of this wise counsel and this prayer, my conclusion was popsicles. Who, who doesn't love popsicles on a, on a hot summer day, especially the kind that you can freeze in those little individual packets and, and, and cut the tops off and suck all the juice. It was a great idea. I thought, hmm, what else would these teens need? Oh, the Bible, popsicles in the Bible. There we go. That was my grand plan to reach these teens with, uh, with Christ. When I first showed up, I had no idea what I was doing. I just knew that I wanted to be there, but I didn't have any formal training. I wasn't yet plugged into a church, so I didn't have anyone to go and to serve alongside me. But I was there. I was bumbling, fumbling, and stumbling along the way, but I was there. And to be honest, the process between seeing those teens at the skate park and actually going to those teens at the skate park was it's a pretty good chunk of time. I, like most of you, allow things like uncertainty or fear or inability to dictate my decisions, whether or not I serve. And that's true for us as people. We oftentimes get these burdens on our hearts, whether it's to reach teens at the skate park or to reach your neighbor, whether it's to talk to that stranger that you see walking around your street ever so often. Whoever it might be, in whatever circumstance it might be, God gives us these, these desires, these burdens to communicate the gospel of Jesus, to share the truth 
of God with others. But oftentimes we don't act because of fear or uncertainty. Maybe it's dangerous. Maybe they think I'm a weirdo. That's okay. That's normal. Our text this morning is meant to encourage us. It's meant to point our eyes to the one that we want to communicate about. Our text this morning is 1 Samuel 14. Go ahead and turn there, 1 Samuel 14. In 1 Samuel 14, we're going to see a battle scene. Now in this battle scene, the Israelites are going to battle the Philistines. The Philistines are one of the great enemies of God's people. The Philistines in this text have occupied a village called Michmash. It's about seven and a half miles north of Jerusalem. King Saul, so Saul's the king at this time. King Saul and his forces are stationed in Migron, which is about a mile southwest of Michmash. From this text, here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the sort of king that God uses to deliver his people. We're going to look at the traits of God's king, the deliverer. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 23. And in these verses, it's really one grand contrast between King Saul and his son, Jonathan. And we're going to be looking at this contrast throughout our sermon this morning. And we're going to see that it's Jonathan, not Saul, who is depicted as God's king, God's deliverer. So our sermon has two moves. We're going to look at God's king and God's people. Okay? 1 Samuel 14. So our first point is God's king. And in verses 1 through 5, we're going to begin our comparison between Saul and Jonathan. And in these verses... We're going to see that it's Jonathan who obediently sought to engage the enemies of God's people. Jonathan obediently sought to engage the enemies of God's people. So let's read verses 1 through 5. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other, Sinna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Gibba. Okay, let's stop there. So I'm going to point some things out to you in this sermon along the way in our contrast. In verses 1 and 4, as well as 5, we see that Jonathan obediently sought to engage the enemies of God's people, the Philistines. 
We see that, that he and his armor bearer, two men, began the mile hike from Migron to Michmash. So the Philistines were positioned on top of what's called a pass. And we see that in verses 4 and 5. And this pass was protected by sheer cliffs. So the only way up to the Philistines was through this pass where sheer cliffs on both sides prevented their Jonathan and his armor bearers uh, advance. One way through. To say the least, Jonathan and his armor bearer were at a military disadvantage. Two guys attacking a garrison on top of a pass. Meanwhile, during their hike to engage the enemy, Saul, as you'll see in verse 2 here, he's comfortably staying back in a pomegranate tree, but some translations say he was parked under a pomegranate tree. So either a pomegranate cave, sitting in a pomegranate cave, or sitting under a pomegranate tree. Either way, he's comfortably back behind enemy lines. And he is probably holding court at this point in time. Now let me clear something up for you. If, if you look at this text, and you're going to see this throughout our sermon, at first blush, it's not going to really hit you. How is Jonathan being obedient here? He seems like he's being reckless. He seems like he's being, in fact, disobedient. He, he didn't even tell his father where he was going. Jonathan is being the obedient one, and Saul is being the disobedient one because of the greater context of this book. In 1 Samuel 9 and 10, which precedes our chapter, Saul was chosen by God to be the king of Israel. Now, in being chosen by God to be king... He was anointed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon Saul. And he was commanded by God to deliver God's people from their enemies. So prior to our battle in 14, God had already provided Saul with his presence, the Spirit, with his power, the Spirit, and with the command. He had his marching orders, go attack the Philistines. Drive them out of the promised land. But as we see, he failed to act. He was disobedient. Unfortunately, it got worse for Saul. Shortly after his commissioning in verse 10, or chapter 10, Saul proved himself to be disobedient by operating in his own way. He operated in his own way, totally disregarding the word of the Lord. Now, as a king, that is unacceptable. He's God's representative for God's people. And if he does not obey God's word, then he must be removed. So we see that actually happen. In chapter 13, just before our passage, Samuel, the prophet of God, tells Saul, Hey, look, you've disobeyed. So your dynasty, your family rule, it's going to be taken away. And then we learn... In chapter 15, not only is his dynasty going to be taken away, meaning Jonathan won't ever rule, but God's actually going to strip from him the kingship. He will die. So this is the context of our passage with obedient Jonathan and disobedient Saul. Saul has been rejected by God. Our passage simply illustrates why God rejected him. Our first point here is he was disobedient. 
we will see very soon, not only was he disobedient, he was faithless. And when you combine a disobedient with a faithless king, you get an inept king, someone who cannot deliver. So let's move now to verses 6 through 16, where we see Jonathan as faith-filled, looking to the Lord for deliverance, and divinely empowered to carry out that deliverance. Faith-filled and divinely empowered. So read with me verses 6 through 16. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hid themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me. For the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men. Within as it were a half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp. In the field and among all the people, the garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. So in this section here, we are going to look at Jonathan's faith-filled statements and actions. Faith-filled statements and actions. Beginning here in verse 6, Jonathan called the Philistines these uncircumcised. So this emphasizes the very important fact that the Philistines were outside of God's covenant. They were not circumcised. Now, big problem for the Philistines. Because as we know, through the Mosaic covenant, if you were in the covenant relationship with God as his people through the Mosaic covenant, God promised in Deuteronomy 28 that, look, Israel, if you faithfully obey me, I will fight for you. I will deliver you from your enemies. I will drive out the Philistines and all the other people in the land. So this is a promise in the Mosaic covenant that Jonathan understood and believed. And by throwing it, throwing it out there, these uncircumcised, that's his way of saying, God, I know what you promised in your covenant. I believe you, and I'm going to act on it. 
Jonathan also calling these Philistines uncircumcised, it foreshadows another mighty warrior of God that we see come onto the scene shortly after our passage in chapter 17. The young man David confronted the giant who was also a Philistine named Goliath. And here is how he confronted him. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So Jonathan, in a similar circumstance as the future King David, looked at his present problem through the eyes of faith. Through the eyes of faith. He believed that God would honor his promise to fight for his people. So also here in verse 6, we read, Jonathan said, It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Now this is a statement mixed with reservation, but filled with faith. You see, Saul was the king. So it was Saul's job to act in obedience, to act in faith, and God would then work through Saul to deliver the people. But Saul's parked, parked under a pomegranate tree. And Jonathan's the one acting in faith, acting in obedience. And so he's, he's crying out to God, I believe in your promise, but I recognize you might not work through me. So we see tremendous humility here. Tremendous faith, but also tremendous humility. Now down in verse 10, we read, But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. We see with this sign that Jonathan is asking for, his faith to come into even sharper focus. Listen to one commentator's description of Jonathan's sign. Quote, Jonathan is just itching to spring into action. Furthermore, his choice of a sign reflects his faith. He assumes that God will be in this business even if the task seems impossible. From a human perspective, two men climbing up a cliff to fight with several soldiers waiting for them when they arrive at the top appears to be the height of foolishness. But Jonathan is assessing the situation from the perspective of faith. He knew God's promise. He believed in God's promise. He acted on God's promise. Okay, and looking at verse 12 here, we see Jonathan's faith-filled sign was confirmed by God. As the Philistines urged Jonathan and his armor-bearer to climb up to them and engage in battle. Also in verse 12, Jonathan repeats almost verbatim his statement of faith from verse 10, saying, For the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. The author, through repetition here, verse 10, verse 12, highlights Jonathan's faith in God's power over his enemies. Even in disadvantaged circumstances, two men climbing up a cliff to fight a garrison. Then Jonathan in verse 13, he climbs on his hands and feet. That highlights just how disadvantaged they were and just how faith-filled he was climbing up, hands and feet, to meet these soldiers ready. 
So the successful results of Jonathan and his armor bearer are seen there in verses 14 and 15. It makes it clear that God was in fact fighting for Jonathan. And that Jonathan was empowered by God. It wasn't Jonathan. It was God through Jonathan. It's it's never about us. It's always about the Lord. He's the hero. He's the superstar. So in verse 15, we see this word panic repeated twice. Again, through this repetition, the author is stressing a tremendous fear. And it's it's a supernatural fear. It's a fear from the Lord. It's not a fear brought on by Jonathan and the armor bearer. With this panic, we see this literary reversal. So the authors of the text uh, and the, uh, the authors of the Bible often use words very specifically. They, they craft passages in such a way that we can see what God is doing. And here in our passage, we see this reversal of panic. Just before our passage in chapter 13, we read that it was the Israelites who were trembling with fear because of the Philistines. But once the Lord empowered Jonathan... The reversal happened. It was now the Philistines who were trembling with fear before the Israelites. Finally, in verse 15, as I've said, this panic, and some translations bring this out a little bit more, it wasn't because of two men climbing a cliff. It was because of the Lord. The Lord had brought about this tremendous panic upon the garrison of the Philistines. And we see that in verse 16, where it says, The multitude was dispersing here and there. They were scattering. One translation says they were melting away. Now that really paints a picture for us, doesn't it? Of the fear just melting away. In fact, this phrase melting away, do you know where else it appears in the Old Testament? It appears in Exodus to describe the fear of the Canaanites once they got news of what God had done to Pharaoh's army with the Red Sea. A tremendous victory by the Lord against a tremendous enemy. And the result, the enemies of God melt away with fear. So here God destroyed a Philistine garrison that vastly outnumbered Jonathan and his armor bearer. And the great victory, it demonstrated to God's people once again, God is strong enough. He is mighty enough. The tactical disadvantage does not matter. The only thing that matters is that you faithfully walk with God. And he will fight for you. He will bring about the victory for his people. So as I I said and as we've done a little so far, there's this great contrast throughout our whole passage here. And so we're going to shift now back to Saul, the rejected king. So as we just saw, Jonathan showed great faith through his comments and his actions. Saul, on the other hand, was busy simply maintaining the appearance of faith. Jonathan demonstrated his faith through action. Saul simply was busy trying to look the part. So Saul was feigning his faith as seen by way of associating with the priestly house of Eli. Now that's there in verse 3. In verse 3, I'm just going to read a part of it. It says that Saul was with Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli. Key word, son of Eli. 
the priest of the Lord in Shiloh. Again, the broader context is important in order to understand why I'm saying that Saul was merely appearing to be a faith-filled man. By way of associating with the priestly house of Shiloh, of Eli, the rejected king Saul is actually associating with the rejected priestly house of Eli. And we know that from chapter 2 in 1 Samuel, where we read that because of Eli's disobedience and the disobedience of his priestly sons, God had rejected them. God, because of their misrepresentation of him, said, you, your family, Eli, will no longer be priests of mine. And we see God bring that rejection from, verse two to, or from chapter 2, the pronouncement of the rejection, and in chapter 4, the installment of that rejection, we see that with the death of Eli and the death of his two sons. So they were cut off. They no longer represented God as his priests. And we see here Saul interacting with one in that house. So what the author is doing is he's showing us, look, whatever you see Saul doing that appears to be faith-filled, as long as he's associating with this family, it's just for show. It's a fake faith. And so we're going to look now at some of these actions of Saul. It's really just a fake faith. It's just the motions. We're going to look at, at that in verses 17 through 23. And here we're going to see Saul's faithlessness demonstrated through his comments and his actions. And therefore, a disobedient, faithless king is inept to deliver. He cannot deliver God's people. So let's read verses 16 through 23. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who is gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow. And there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the, ba heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. So in these verses here, we're going to see Saul's faithless actions, his faithless comments. Beginning in verse 18, Saul commanded the rejected priest Ahijah to bring him the ark. Now, at first glance, that, that appears to be a faith-filled statement. Bring me the ark, because the ark symbolizes the presence of God. And as we read, at that time, soldiers would march into the battle with the ark saying, hey, God's fighting for us. And so Saul's saying, bring, bring the ark, 
Because he hears that the battle is raging. Again, the problem is Saul in chapter 10 had already been given the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the presence of God. It is the power of God. He did not need the ark. He's failing to act on what he already has. He's failing to believe what God has already done for him. Second, the battle, it's, it's currently waging, which we see in verse 16. He, the watchman says, Saul, there's a battle going on. So the battle is waging. And what does he do? Instead of jumping into battle with the power and presence of God, he orders the ark to be brought to him. So he's stalling. He's failing to act. Another problem asking the ark to be brought to him is it was six miles away. It was six miles away. It would take some time for the ark to make its way to Saul, to the battlefield. And you can read about that in 1 Samuel 7. So by asking for the ark that was six miles away in a battle that was already waging, the text portrays Saul as an inept king. He cannot deliver God's people. Why? He's faithless. He's faithless. If you think it couldn't get any worse for Saul, you're wrong. It gets worse. In verse 19, as the tumult in the Philistine camp grows louder and louder, instead of leading his troops into battle, it seems Paul panicked, or Saul panicked, realizing the ark's not going to get to him in time. The noise is getting louder. He orders the priest, withdraw your hand. Now, this is a reference to the priest wearing this article of clothing called an ephod. And the ephod was actually used to, uh, for God to deliver an oracle to his people, for the priest to get a word from God, for the priest to know the will of God. God had already told Saul his will. Saul, you are my king. Your job is to deliver my people. I've given you my spirit. Now go do it. So by asking the priest to remove his hand, he's asking God for, what's your will, Lord? What is it you would have me to do? This is an act that appears to be faithful. He doesn't believe in what God has already done for him. God delivered his people not through Saul, but through Jonathan, the obedient, faith-filled one, the one who leapt into action because he knew and believed in God's covenant promises. And we see that in verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day. So the Lord saved Israel, his people, that day. As we've seen here, according to our text, by way of contrast, Jonathan is the sort of king God uses to deliver his people. Jonathan has the traits of God's king, God's deliverer. Those traits are obedience, faith-filled, and this God empowerment to bring about deliverance. Historically speaking, Jonathan here, he foreshadows King David. But as we know, King David foreshadows Jesus, the Christ, our King. Our King Jesus, he has provided the ultimate deliverance for his people. He's delivered us from the penalty and the power of sin. He's rescued us from bondage to Satan. 
And he saved us from the wrath of God that all sinners deserve. Christ's deliverance was accomplished through his death on the cross for sinners. The righteous for the unrighteous, the innocent for the guilty. For those of us who have trusted in Christ alone, we have been delivered into God's kingdom. Christ is our king. We are members in right standing with God in his family. And we are forever united. We are now united forever with Christ, our King, the Deliverer. Since we are united with him, since we are his covenant people, what is our role? What is the role of God's people? According to our text this morning, which is a a battle scene, we see our role as God's covenant people united with Christ, exemplified through Jonathan's armor bearer. Read with me again verse 7. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. So what is our role? It's an attitude that looks to Christ and says, let's go for it. I'm with you all the way. Let's go for it, Christ. I'm with you all the way. Whatever it is you're leading me into, whatever battle it is that you might have for me as the one united with you, let's go for it. Let's do it. I'm with you all the way. You see, Jesus has given us all that we need. We have his spirit, which is his presence and his enabling power. And we have his marching orders. We have his marching orders. Go make disciples of all the nations. Our marching orders are to make disciples of all the nations. This is a battle. Satan might have been defeated on the cross, but he's still present. He's still prince of this earth. He still holds people in bondage. This is a battle. So in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, I want to make something clear. We have his presence. We have his power. We have the marching orders. And those verses include all three of those. Listen as I read to you Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we have our marching orders, make disciples of all the nations. We have Christ's spirit present with us, and that is the enabling power. We know what to do. But do you remember my story? Popsicles and a sack full of Bible verses. I was, I was not trained. I was ill-equipped. I had a, a burden. I had a passion, but I didn't know what I was doing. I was bumbling. I was stumbling. And no doubt, a lot of those kids simply took advantage of me, which, you know, doesn't surprise me. They're teenagers. It was hot. They're going to read a Bible verse and maybe talk to me about it. 
for a popsicle. We as a church, we want to equip you with more than popsicles and a sack of scriptures. We as a church, we want the Great Commission to be at the heart of everything that we're doing. And so, no matter what role you volunteer to serve in here in our church, whether it's with the youth or the elementary, preschool, the nursery, that is a great commission, great commission ministry and that God is using you to impart truth. God is using you to make disciples. And so as the Lord leads you to do that, go with him all the way. Don't, don't let fear, don't let even self-centered desires, I don't have time, get in the way. He's tugging on each of us to join the battle. Each of us are in the battle, whether we're walking with him or, like Saul, parked under a pomegranate tree. The battle is waging. And so I encourage you, just be sensitive to those nudgings by God's Spirit that, you know what, I'm not, I'm not serving. Well, serve. Each ministry we have here fits within the Great Commission, and you will be in obedience to God in that. With that said, though, there's one ministry, it's a brand new ministry that I want to highlight. It's called Spiritual Multiplication. Spiritual Multiplication is the, the month's worth of work between our missions team here at Bethel and our missionaries. What Spiritual Multiplication is, it's a discipleship training we want to equip you. We want to train you how to make disciples. How to step into this battle with confidence, with training, with the know-how. How to put into practice all that you already know about the Bible. All that you will continue to learn about the Bible. So that you can be like Jonathan's armor bearer and say, let's go for it, Jesus. I'm with you all the way. Spiritual multiplication it's going to begin on August 25th. Uh, that's a Wednesday evening. And it will take place every Wednesday evening throughout the entire fall semester. It's being led by one of our own missionaries, Josh Aduddle, who is trained in this, who has applied this in his own ministry on the mission field. He is now back with us, and he is passionate. He is ready to teach us, to equip us, to be disciple makers. It's an obedience-based discipleship training. And he will walk with you each step of the way. You and whoever else is in your group, you as a group will walk each step of the way learning how to put into practice the things that we as a church need to be doing as we engage in this battle. Josh is at the Connect Corner, so at the conclusion of our service, just go find Josh. Go talk to him. Ask him some questions. It's a family-friendly uh, pro program, training. We have free child care. So we're trying to remove all barriers so that we can be like Jonathan's armor bearer and look to Christ and say, let's go for it. I'm with you all the way. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that the victory is yours. The battle is yours. 
we have a part, but Lord, it is, it is not to engineer success. It is simply to walk faithfully with you. We thank you, Lord, for your word, for the, the truth that it imparts to us. I pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us, that we would know that we don't have to be superstars or heroes. That's, that's already taken. That's Jesus' job. Give us an attitude, Lord, to be willing to go with Christ wherever he leads. And we do pray that you would use us as a church in making disciples. We love you, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.